In this video, we're going to be talking about productiveness as the adjustment of nature to man from chapter eight of Leonard Peikoff's book, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand. Stay tuned. All right, so let's start out with a summary. Productiveness we get is the process of creating material values that we as human beings either face a choice of using our minds to conceive and create the values that foster and enhance our ability to survive, or we live as parasites. And we get from Leonard that the material benefits of productiveness are obvious. And in fact, really, we've seen in the whole argument for reason as man's basic means of survival, why material values and the process of creating them is vital for human life. And here we get a focus on the spiritual needs fulfilled by productiveness and the spiritual meaning of productiveness. So the foundational point here is that thought is not an end in itself. It's not for its own sake, it's for the sake of action. It's for the sake of guiding ourselves through the world. And so we need knowledge in order to achieve values and productive work is really the essence of how we turn knowledge into values. So the way that Leonard puts it is that knowledge is power and wealth is thought. That productive achievement is a moral achievement. It's using your mind to create the values that sustain human life. And this is flies in the face of the mind-body dichotomy. The mind-body dichotomy basically says productiveness is part of the material realm. It's low, it's mindless, it's not noble, and that the spiritual is above the material realm. And basically that you get kind of two types that flow out of this. One says, all right, to hell with the material realm. I'm concerned with the higher things in life. And then you get the other kind that says, all right, to hell with the mind, to hell with the nobler things in life. I want to survive. I want to be prosperous. And objectivism rejects that. It says that productiveness is noble precisely because it is both a realm that embodies and requires our highest virtue of rationality and because of the consequence, which is the achievement of human flourishing. The role of productive work in life, part of to say that it has a spirit, that it fulfills a spiritual need, is to say that it is the it is essential to the achievement of purpose. So purpose is, is one of the primary values that Ayn Rand lays out, and it's, and it's it's wider than product productiveness because it's being purposeful in every aspect of your life. If we think about what focus is, it's bringing your mind into a purposeful state of alertness, a purposeful pursuit of awareness. And what and governing your life by purpose means knowing what you're doing and why. And the role of productiveness is to make it possible to translate that into a whole way of living, to be purposeful in every aspect um, you need a central purpose that's going to integrate all of your actions, and it's only a career that can fulfill that. You can't integrate your life in a purposeful way around other, in, around other people or around recreation. Um, in order to create a rational hierarchy of values and live a purposeful life, it has to be integrated 
around production, around a productive career. And so the way that Leonard puts it is, work is necessary not only materially, but also spiritually or psychologically. It is the sole means by which a person can sustain across his lifespan an active mind and a goal-directed course, and thereby remain in control of his brain and actions. Productiveness constitutes the main existential content of virtue, the day-by-day substance of the moral life. And so we end with the idea that what productiveness demands is not any particular scale of achievement. It's not that like the more moral you are, the more more money you'll make or vice versa. It's rather about using your mind to its fullest extent. It's that you're always growing in your ability to create values. And if you're doing that, then you are practicing the virtue of productiveness to its full extent. So let's then step back and look at our MPI analysis. The principle here is that to live, you need to rearrange the metaphysically given in order to sustain your life. You need to adjust nature to fit the needs of human beings. Intellectually, it's that you have to exert mental effort to determine what values to create and why they're worth creating and how to create them. And then existentially, you have to exert the physical effort to actually create them. The metaphysically given fact that productiveness recognizes is that man achieves values by producing and therefore the moral guidance is go out and produce them. So I want to talk a little bit about this idea of purpose and in particular distinguish an ultimate purpose or the kind of primary purpose of your life with the idea of a central purpose because I think they often get confused but there's an important distinction here. So for objectivism, we should always be purposeful. We should always have an answer to the question of what for, as Francisco puts it in Atlas Shrugged. It's that we define what values we want and we go after them. And this is what Ayn Rand talks about as final causation of being a disciple of final causation. So here's how she puts it in her essay, Causality versus Duty. In a rational ethics, it is causality, not duty, that serves as the guiding principle in considering, evaluating, and choosing one's actions, particularly those necessary to achieve a long-range goal. Following this principle, a man does not act without knowing the purpose of his action. In choosing a goal, he considers the means required to achieve it. He weighs the value of the goal against the difficulties of the means and against the full hierarchical context of all his other values and goals. He does not demand the impossible of himself, and he does not decide too easily which things are impossible. He never drops the context of the knowledge available to him and never evades reality, realizing fully that his goal will not be granted to him by any power other than his own action, and should he evade, it is not some Kantian duty, Kantian authority that he would be cheating, but himself. Now, your highest purpose from objectivism's perspective is the achievement of your own happiness. This is your ultimate what for. So why am I doing something? You can always ask, well, what for, what for? And if you remember our discussion of the meta-ethics, of the, of the relationship between values and life, the way that Ayn Rand gets at this connection of how can life be the ultimate goal, the ultimate value, is because we can ask what for, and then it climaxes into life. And, and as she argued, and we'll talk about more in a later section, she viewed life and happiness as two aspects of the same achievement. Um, but that your highest moral purpose, the, the thing that you're aiming at above all else, is your happiness. 
productiveness is your central purpose. It's that to achieve your happiness, you need to be able to form a rational hierarchy of values of this is what matters to me more than this. And what objectivism says is that you cannot do that without making a productive goal your central purpose. Now, a career may not be your highest value, but it has to be the central value around which you organize your life. And as we'll see, part of what that means is around which you organize your time. So let's dive into this idea of hierarchy of values because to get what it means to say that something is a central value is to say you're building your hierarchy of values around it. To value something according to objectivism means to select it according to a standard of value. Uh, I've written a piece on this. Um, I forget the title. I'll link to it below. I think it's how to form a hierarchy of values. And I start out with this contrast of uh, in Ayn Rand's Marginalia, she's reading um, Ludwig von Mises, the great economist, his book Human Action. And he talks about, you know, to value something is to prefer it to something else. And she says, no, that's to choose it. To value something is to select it according to a standard. And you might say nothing lives up to this standard. So it's like I value my wife not because, well, she's better than 10 other girls. It's because I have a conception of what I want from a romantic partner that this person embodies and lives up to, and therefore I value them, right? That's the kind of idea of it's you have standards and you're selecting things according to that standard. And we've gotten what the standard of value is, the moral standard of value, the fundamental standard by which we're selecting and evaluating things as man's life. But to live by that standard, to actually implement it, you have to be able to translate it into a hierarchy of values. So this is the way that Ayn Rand puts it in Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology. A moral code is a set of abstract principles. To practice it, an individual must translate it into appropriate concretes. He must choose the particular goals and values which he is to pursue. This requires that he define his particular hierarchy of values in the order of their importance and that he act accordingly. And the act accordingly is why a hierarchy is so important. And so you can think of it in the negative. Objectivism stresses and argues that you don't sacrifice. And sacrifice means to sacrifice a higher value to a lower value or non-value. Well, how do you even have lower and higher non-values? How do you even decide what is a sacrifice? It's precisely because you have a hierarchy. You have a ranking of what's more and less important to you. And that's what's going to allow you, if you want to think about it negatively, not to sacrifice or to put it differently. It's what allows you to pursue your highest values and uh, not get detracted into things that are less important. Well, how do you actually create a hierarchy of values? And here what we get with productiveness is a central piece of advice it's not the full advice but it's a central piece which is you have to have a central purpose a central value that's going to have the greatest claim on your time the direction of your life the choices that you make the people that you're friends with where you're going to live so this is how Ayn Rand puts it in her uh, playboy interview a central purpose serves to integrate all the other concerns of a man's life. It establishes the hierarchy, the relative importance of his values. It saves him from pointless inner conflicts. It permits him to enjoy life on a wide scale and to carry that enjoyment 
into any area open to his mind. Whereas a man without a purpose is lost in chaos. He does not know what his values are. He does not know how to judge. He cannot tell what is or is not important to him. And therefore, he drifts helplessly at the mercy of any chance stimulus or any whim of the moment. He can enjoy nothing. He spends his life searching for some value, which he will never find. So I said this, but now I want to really highlight it, which is that a hierarchy of values is really a time hierarchy. It's how much of my life am I going to devote to the different areas of my life, to the different values and value pursuits in my life. So as I mentioned, I've written a piece in this called Creating Your Hierarchy of Values, and I'm not going to go through everything I write there, but I just want to make uh, a couple points, which is that the main thing to keep in mind is that if you're trying to work out your va- your value hierarchy, the main thing you need to strive for is to have commensurable values. So you couldn't just basically look around your life and say, all right, well, I like my you know career, I value my spouse, I value my pet dog, I value pumpkin pie, I value the movie Die Hard, I, like... And now let me just rank them and kind of come up with a list of one, two, three, four, five, six. Like your your values are going to be incommensurable. And so you wouldn't be able to rank them and it couldn't be. And if you tried to do it that way, then you would lead to, you would not be able to figure out, okay, well, um, should I be, you know, playing with my dog right now? Or should I be sleeping with my wife or watching Die Hard? It would be, uh, impossible to actually use this as a functioning um, value hierarchy and so what you want to do is think about all right what are the kind of areas of my life that are kind of on the same level and that I can divide up time accordingly so um, I cite a podcast that Alex Epstein did on time and the way he puts it is uh, the way he divides things up in his life are the areas of creation, recreation, rejuvenation, reflection, companions, resources, environment, physical health, mental health. And you have to think about the kind of buckets in your life and the ones that make the most sense. But I think you can see how if you're trying to create a hierarchy of those areas of your life, you could see, okay, yeah, work, I want to give, you know, nine hours of the day, but I need an hour of rejuvenation and I need, um, you know, two hours of, uh, um, companions or you, the, the ability to kind of carve out over the course of a day or a week, the way in which you want to apportion your time, according to these kind of buckets that are actually commensurable is a lot easier. And then part of what you're going to do to create the hierarchy is that within these buckets you might think well the activities under them are not commensurable right so if it's companions um i can't just kind of list you know my wife my parents my kids my friends my college you know buddy like all the way down my colleagues i might want to put those in buckets and rank those in the same way until i can ultimately get to a list of concrete specific values that i can rank and what you'll have after that exercise is you'll actually have a, a hierarchy in which you can kind of you you can literally sit down and block out the time that you want to spend in your week so that you're getting the most the most values out of your time so i want to turn then to a different topic which is productiveness is the essence of a moral life because that is 
should be a really striking claim. And if you think about what the essence of a moral life is for a Christian, like some of them will say, yeah, work is part of it. God wants you to work and it teaches kind of um, foregoing uh, uh, rewards and acting long-term. Um, but the essence of a moral life, like, no, the essence of a moral life is faith, hope, and charity. And so you could think of something like, you know, the bishop from Les Miserables. It's, he's the moral ideal because he's devoted his life to the poor. And that's kind of the conventional picture of what's the essence of a moral life. Even if work fits in there, some, or nobody would put it at the center. And it's really important in this regard to see how radically different it is uh, to think about Ayn Rand's statement that she, um, which I think she made like off the, not off the record, but like um, to Leonard Peikoff in personal conversation that she couldn't have developed the objectivist ethics before the Industrial Revolution. And I want to recommend a really good talk by Ankar Gatte. I think it's called Productive Achievement and it's, it's on YouTube. And again, I'll try to remember to link to it in the show notes. But he makes the he really spends some time in this point that um, what the Industrial Revolution makes clear is that our means of survival is fundamentally different from animals. It brings to the surface what our means of survival is, and it is that you know animals survive through kind of repeated patterns of action, generation after generation, whereas human beings survive by using reason to transform our environment. And that the result is not repeating these cycles generation after generation, but it's progress and not just the kind of slow progress that you saw that would like over eons, you human beings would um, kind of level up their ability to cope with nature. But in the course of your life, the world at the beginning would look completely different from the world at the end of your life. It's that kind of rapid, constant progress that is human beings means of survival. And part of Ayn Rand's view or what's going on in her ethics is saying, given this fact, this striking fact that, that the mind can transform life for the better in the space of years, we need to rethink morality. We need to rethink moral principles. And if you if you do that and if your concern is human life well then it's productive work isn't just virtuous it is the essence of a moral life so life is just pursuing values it's pursuing achieving and enjoying values and the way to do that is to create the values that our life requires and so this is why objectivism rejects the idea that there's such thing as enough, that you could have enough of progress, you could have enough values, you could have enough health and enjoyment and like fun and creativity. Um, the You can think of it in negative terms that to say we could have enough values is to say the problem of survival is solved and that our life is fully secure. And yet we know that there, that, we always face this alternative of life and death. But I think it's important to think about it in the positive. There's nothing else to do except pursue more and more values, more and more knowledge, more and more wealth, more and more uh, pride, success, to be as rich and healthy and happy as possible. And the objectivist ethics is 
all formulated from that perspective that it's all about the ambitious pursuit of values. So the Ankar makes this point of if you think about the three major values highlighted in the objectivist ethics, rationality, productiveness, and pride, they're all about ambition, the ambitious pursuit of knowledge, the ambitious pursuit of material values, the ambitious pursuit uh, of, or the way, moral ambitiousness, the ambitiousness, the ambitious pursuit of an ever-improving character. And it's in that sense that objectivists would proudly embrace the title of greed, that yes, we want more and more values, more and more knowledge, more and more um, material values, more and more self-esteem. And part of what I want to bring out from that is that it's important that we view productive activity not as solely a means to values, but as itself a value. So it's yes, like you need to work in order to be able to see the movies you want to see and pay the rent and buy health insurance and groceries and things like that. But in a, it, uh, just as importantly, and in fact, I think in the final analysis, more importantly, the reason that you buy groceries and pay the rent and everything is so you can continue to do creative work that this process that pursues values, uh, creates values, is itself a profound value. And if you look at Ayn Rand's heroes, it is the kind of core meaning of their life, whether it's the life of an architect for Howard Work, the life of somebody running a transcontinental railway for Dagny Taggart, the life of an inventor for John Galt. You can put it a different way, which is that creativity and achievement are the essence of life. And for a human being, conforming to reality is primarily about understanding reality so that we can creatively transform it in the image of our values. And that's why you don't have, you know, the moral heroes of, of Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead. It's not the bishop sacrificing for the poor it, or, you know, even monks meditating in a cave. It's architects, industrialists, inventors, novelists, it's creators. And we can connect this to the virtue of rationality, which is the primary virtue. So Ayn Rand calls rationality her only moral absolute. And we have talked about the way in which it's the primary virtue. And you might think then, okay, well, given that kind of high praise for rationality, how can we say that productiveness is the essence of morality? And if you remember our discussion of the validation of rationality, the validation of reason as man's means of survival, we were primarily looking at its role in producing material values. That was at the heart of understanding reason as man's basic means of survival. That was the evidence. And so rationality is dedication to your rational faculty, but why is that dedication necessary? Why is rationality a value? Because it is a, our tool of survival. And the essence of what it means to be a tool for our survival, it's a tool for producing values. It's a tool for creating values. And, it's, and so what productiveness is highlighting is it's using your mind to create. That is the essence of what morality is telling you to do. That is what it means to live a moral life. At the heart of it, it's using your mind to understand the world so you can create the values that allow you to live in the world.
So I want to end by talking about kind of practical advice, and I want to focus on a debate that's really taken place maybe over the last 10 years about this idea of should you follow your passion? And really since maybe the 90s, this has been kind of the conventional wisdom. And it's actually one of the few times I largely agree with the conventional wisdom that like you should find a career that you're genuinely passionate about that gives you deep kind of enjoyment. But other thinkers, including people whom I really respect, like the thinker Cal Newport, argue that that's really bad advice. And what he argues is that the way we feel passionate about work, and I don't even know if he would use that exact phrasing, is when we have, when we've developed and cultivated a valuable skill set, when we can support ourselves and do work at a high level and therefore enjoy doing the work. And that what you really want to do is focus on cultivating valuable skills, and that will lead to passion rather than the other way around. And my own view is that this is, in the end, a false dichotomy. So I'd say for some people, your passion jumps out at you and often in an early age. And so you can think Ayn Rand as a preeminent example of somebody who knew, I believe, since the age of nine, that she wanted to be a fiction writer. She wanted to be a novelist. And even thinking about myself, I knew from a very young age what I wanted to be was a writer. And then by the time I was a teenager, I knew that my ideal was to write about objectivism. But for people who don't already have, who don't find themselves having this kind of deep, specific passion about what they want to do, you can tell them to pursue their passion, but it's not very useful advice. I mean, after all, if they knew what they were passionate about, they wouldn't be asking, what should I do with my career? And so here, I think it's right that what one should be pursuing and thinking about is not looking around and going, well, am I passionate about selling shoes? And so therefore I should work at Nike or am I passionate about space travel? I should go uh, try to work for NASA or Elon Musk. What you want to be really searching for is what are what is the valuable skill set I want to develop? But it, you can think about it in terms of passion. What way of using my mind am I actually passionate about? Do I enjoy? And just to give an example of what I mean, I had a friend years ago who we would play, you know, different kinds of uh, games and board games and things. And he would always crush me. And it would be because he would be very methodically test out different strategies and tweak different strategies over and over over again very methodically until he discovered the optimal strategy for a game and to me that sounded like hell on earth and i mean no surprise he was also like a computer engineer whiz and the the way he liked using his mind was this very methodical testing step-by-step incremental improvement and whereas i like kind of big bold creative thinking large-scale integrations you know, deep fundamental insights that kind of simplified a whole big complexity. It was, we naturally were attracted to different ways of using our minds. And I think that's really what you want to search for. And what you think is, what is, how do I like using my mind? And then what is a valuable skill set that I'm willing to put in the time to cultivate, that I'm, that I'm willing to put in the years that are necessary to go from becoming a, Uh, somebody who's not yet competent to somebody who's mastered 
this way of functioning. And so it's very helpful in those kinds of cases to look back at um, questions that you can ask about different stages of your life. So childhood, teenager, and today, it's, you know, what am I doing when I don't have anything to do? Maybe an even better question is, what do I do when I'm supposed to be doing other things? Like, what's my favorite form of procrastinating? And what you're assessing here is not the field. It's not, oh, well, I'm, uh, not necessarily the field. Um, it's you're assessing the kind of way of using your mind. Is it like a more engineering way of using your mind? Is it more of an interpersonal way of using your mind? Is it kind of creative thinking? You're looking for the kind of style. And I'm sure there's quizzes that probably have this divided up in, in really valuable, interesting ways. I've, I haven't taken them, or at least I haven't taken them in recent memory. But that's the kind of thing I would want to get clear on. And then it's looking for, for opportunities to learn and develop that skill set, turn gain mastery. And then what you have then is you have a field where you're using your mind the way you like to use it. You're, you're experiencing efficacy and achievement. And that's what I think in the end you'll fall in love with as a career. And there can be other challenges of searching for the right career because careers come in packages. And the kind of quintessential example of this would be, you know, the standard, the lawyer who finds that they hate law. And often what it will be is that, well, like, I like the kind of creative problem solving of creating briefs. I hate the high pressure. I hate the sales aspects of it, always having to win over clients. And so there it's, okay, well, why don't I transfer to like academia or a think tank or something where I'm able to get a different package, but still maintain the core way of using my mind that I really enjoy. And then the specific skills falling under that umbrella that I've developed. And so what, and so that's what I'd be thinking about it, the way I like using my mind and then find an opportunity to get on the trajectory of learning skills in a field that, um, is attractive to you that that uh, involves using your mind that way and then you have to give it a certain amount of time because i mean even i'd been studying objectivism and practicing writing my own for you know countless years by the i mean they're not literally countless it would have been fewer than 25 but um for a long time by the time i got my first job as a professional writer or at least a professional writer in the realm of ideas and it still took really I think three or four years before I really had basic competence where I could write something that anybody on earth would want to read slash publish. It took five or six years before I really developed my own style and had control of my abilities. And to the extent that I think that I've achieved mastery, I would say it's only been in the last few years, maybe the last two or three. And so this can take a long time. And that period, particularly the very earliest period where you are, you spend most of your time not feeling competent, not being able to achieve what you want to achieve, that is very hard and very frustrating. And you have to be willing to pay that price and not jump to the conclusion of, oh, well, it looks a lot greener, you know, in the other pasture. And the, the kind of question to ask yourself is, okay, is this the frustration inherent in learning any difficult skill set? Or am I using my mind in a way I actually don't like at all? Or is this overall package uh, 
of the job a bad fit, or it could be even more specific, and maybe you work for a lousy company. So there's difficult questions, but I would say make a real commitment. And I, I'm thinking a period of you know two or more years um, commitment to anything that you've had good reason to think you could get good at and would enjoy once you're good at, uh, because I think it's very hard to tell in less than that. And certainly I don't think in less than a year you can tell anything about whether you're on the right track or not. Uh, in terms of resources, here's two resources that I think are very helpful for somebody who's striving to find the kind of career that they want to engage in. So one is a book by Barbara Sher, S-H-E-R. Uh, I could do anything if only I knew what it was. And I haven't read the whole thing, but I've heard from many people who find it very valuable. It's very tactical about how to go about discovering a career you'll enjoy. And then in terms of the process of developing mastery, of going from novice into master, which I think is the core to building a career that you love, by far the greatest book I think ever written on that process is by a guy named Robert Greene called Mastery. It's one of my favorite books of all time. And this is not your standard self-help, like, you know, get ahead by being the first one into the office and the last one out. He has a deep understanding and really subtle understanding of human psychology and of the process of learning to be an independent creator and creative thinker. And so I, I highly recommend that book. And I think those two combined can really set you on a good trajectory so that you can pr practice the virtue of productiveness and enjoy your work, you know, if not to the level uh, of a Rourke necessarily, at least to a level that will lead to a really satisfying, enjoyable life. So that's it for this video. Be sure to like it, subscribe to the YouTube channel. And as always, the best way to stay in contact is to go to donswriting.com and sign up for the newsletter. Talk next time.